Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 172 of the GDPR Weekly Show. And coming up in this week's episode, we have news of a large data breach at GoDaddy. We then have news of a data breach at green energy supplier Vestas. We then travel to Basingstoke in Hampshire where Demira Dental Practice has had to apologise to a patient after a data breach. We then travel to Ireland where the Irish DPC has been accused of corruption in its investigation of Facebook. We then look at the updates WhatsApp has made to its privacy policies since its ruling from the Irish DPC. And we then move to Canada where in Ontario a man has been charged after a Top ID 19 data breach. We then move to Pakistan where a government body has been formed to probe the NADRA data breach. We then travel to the Philippines, where a data breach has hit retailer S&R. And then to Singapore, where Swire Pacific Offshore have had a data breach. We then answer a question that comes up regularly on our help desk as to what exactly is a good implementation of GDPR. And we then return to Ireland, where the DPC has stepped in to ensure GDPR compliance amongst a number of public bodies and also a number of bodies in the private sector. We then look around the thorny issue of CCTV and GDPR and look at what we've termed the good, the bad and the ugly. We then have more details on the GDPR certification schemes, which we mentioned some time ago here on the GDPR Weekly Show. We then have news that the EDPB has provided some really useful guidance on what is and what isn't a data transfer as far as GDPR is concerned. And that's particularly valid between the UK and the EU and vice versa. And then finally, we have news of a new bill making its way through the UK Parliament, which will impose on suppliers of digital devices standards that they will have to implement to ensure that on the Internet of Things, that their devices are suitably secured. So there's always a wide range of articles for you this week. We hope you find the information in the articles useful and informative. If you have any feedback for us, please do not hesitate to email feedback at gprweeklyshow.com. We do read every single piece of feedback we receive and wherever possible we incorporate your suggestions for improvements into the show. Unfortunately, due to the volume of feedback we receive, it's not always possible to respond to each piece of feedback individually. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time. We begin this week with news of a massive data breach at GoDaddy. It's believed that the breach on November the 17th gave an attacker access to more than a million email addresses of GoDaddy's managed WordPress users. It's worth stating at this point that the breach only involved those using GoDaddy's managed WordPress users. Everyone who just has domains hosted with GoDaddy didn't have their emails passwords hacked, only the managed WordPress ones. In a statement, GoDaddy announced that on November the 17th, GoDaddy discovered unauthorized third-party access to its managed WordPress hosting environment. Using a compromised password and unauthorized third party access to the provisioning system in GoDaddy's legacy code base for managed WordPress. Demetrius Combs, GoDaddy's CISO, said, Upon identifying this incident, we immediately blocked the unauthorized third party from our system. The attacker used the vulnerability to access the following. Up to 1.2 million active and inactive managed WordPress customers had their email address and customer number exposed. The exposure of email addresses obviously presents a risk of phishing attack. The original WordPress admin password that was set at the time of provisioning was exposed. If those credentials were still in use, GoDaddy reset those passwords. For active customers, Secure File Transfer Protocol, SFTP, 
and database usernames and passwords are exposed, GoDaddy reset these passwords. For a subset of active customers, the security sockets layer SSL private key was exposed, GoDaddy is issuing and installing new certificates for these customers. Our investigation is ongoing well and we are contacting all impacted customers directly with specific details, Chambers said. We will learn from this incident and are already taking steps to strengthen our provisioning system with additional levels of protection. If we receive any update on this from GoDaddy, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. A leading UK green energy supplier, Vestas Wind, is gradually opening up its IT systems in the wake of shutdowns last Friday to contain damage after a data breach. Danish Vesta Wind Systems, manufacturer, seller, installer and servicer of wind turbines, which has recently been exploring ways to expand its UK operations, has reported an attack against its corporate IT systems that caused shutdowns across multiple business units and locations to contain the issue. On Monday, the company announced that some of its IT infrastructure and internal data may have been compromised, but also pointed out that according to preliminary findings, there was no indication that third-party operations, including customer and supply chains, had been caught up. The gradual and controlled reopening of all IT systems is already underway, they said. Although the attack bears the hallmarks of a ransomware attack, Vestas refused to offer any information regarding the specific nature of the attack at this stage. Vestas, one of the world's largest manufacturing companies, already had a difficult year before this incident. In 2021, it slowed its operating profit forecast twice, taking it from 10 to 4%. Vestas blamed supply chain issues and material prices for the deteriorating outlook. Steel prices rose by almost 50% between the start of 2020 and October 2021. The fact that prices crashed back down by 25% in the past few weeks may improve the company's fortunes again and help it recover from the 2.63% share price drop it suffered on the Nasdaq Copenhagen Stock Exchange list following the data breach update. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com to Basingstoke now and a dental surgery in Basingstoke which was accused of passing on confidential information about a patient has apologised to the patient concerned. An investigation was launched after Demira Dental Studios in South Ham in Basingstoke were alleged to have passed on information to the Basingstoke Gazette newspaper about Basingstoke mum Louise Elliott. Louise had got in touch with the newspaper after being unable to access an NHS appointment with Demira, having suffered with excruciating pain caused by broken teeth. The 36-year-old said she was in agony but had been unable to see her dentist at Demira as an NHS patient despite trying for months. When the Basingstoke Gazette newspaper contacted Demira Dental Studio for a comment, the woman who answered the phone gave them seemingly confidential information about Louise, including a number of appointments she had attended, those she had missed, and details of emergency appointments and checkups. The lady also told the newspaper that Louise had been taken off the books as an NHS patient after failing to attend nine appointments since 2013. Louise, however, said she'd never been informed of this. Dr Anishika Bogan, Managing and Clinical Director at Demira, said the investigation had now concluded. Speaking to the Basin Stoke Gazette newspaper, she said, We have investigated the claims and apologised to the patient for the information that was given. Louise confirmed that Deputy Practice Manager Fiona Arnold had contacted her this week after the newspaper had asked for an update to say the investigation has concluded and no action will be taken. She said they did apologise for the information given but kept trying to blame the newspaper. I said I'm not happy with the decision because they've given out my information. They won't do anything about it. Louise said the surgery then offered her an NHS appointment to see a dentist this week. A spokesperson from the ICO, the Information Commissioner's Office, confirmed that it had not received any data breach report from Demira. However, of course, not all data breaches need to be reported to the ICO, and indeed this one 
would seem probably to fall into that category, although in our professional opinion here at GDPR Weekly Show, it's marginal because there is medical data potentially involved. But on the balance of probability at the moment, we would agree with the decision not to refer it to the ICO. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, you'll know that we've spoken frequently about the ongoing investigation of Facebook by the Irish Data Protection Commission. Well, this week things took something of a sinister twist with a privacy group alleging a conspiracy between the Irish Data Protection Commission and Facebook. And we should stress that this is an allegation. It has not yet been tried. And we here at the GDPR Weekly Show are offering no support to either party with simply reporting the news. The Ireland's State Protection Commission, DPC, is now the subject of a criminal complaint lodged in Austria alleging corruption and even bribery in the service of covering its own backside and shrinking the public understanding of the regulatory problems facing Facebook's business. European Privacy Group, NOYB, has filed the criminal complaint against the Irish DPC, which is Facebook's lead regulator in the EU for data protection, because that's where Facebook have their main premises. NOYB is making the complaint under Austrian law, reporting the Irish regulator to the Austrian Office for the Prosecution of Corruption, the WKSIA, after the Data Protection Commission sought to use what NOYB terms procedural blackmail to try to gag it and prevent it from publishing documents related to GDPR complaints against Facebook. NOYB alleges that the Irish regulator sought to pressure it to sign an illegal non-disclosure agreement, an NDA, in relation to a public procedure. Its complaint argues there is no legal basis for such a requirement, accusing the DPC of seeking to coerce it into silence, as Facebook would surely wish it to do, by threatening not to comply with its regulatory duty to hear the complainant unless NOYB signed the NDA. The letter sent by the DPC to NOYB seeking an agreement to maintain the confidentiality of all material relating to objections by other DPAs, as well as those associated observations by the data controller, complainant, DPC or any other EU supervisory authorities, vis-à-vis a draft decision related to a complaint against Facebook that's undergoing an active dispute resolution procedure on the grounds that such arrangements are necessary to preserve, maintain free and frank exchanges and to ensure that the interim views were not aired to order to preserve the confidentiality and integrity of the co-decision-making procedure, as the DPC's letter demands. The DPC acknowledges that it has a legal duty to hear us, but is now engaged in a form of procedural coercion, said NOYB Chair Matt Srems in a statement. He went on to say, The right to be heard was made conditional on us signing an agreement to the benefit of the DPC and Facebook. It is nothing but an authority demanding to give up the freedom of speech in exchange for procedural rights. The regulator has also demanded that NOYB remove documents it has previously made public related to the DPC's draft decision of a GDPR complaint against Facebook, again without clarifying what legal basis it has to make such a demand. As NOYB points out, it's based in Austria, not Ireland, so it's subject to Austrian law and not Irish law. But putting that to one side, even under Irish law, it argues that there's no legal duty for parties to keep documents confidential, pointing out that Section 26 of the Irish Data Protection Act, which was cited by the DPC, only applies to DPC staff, not to parties. Generally, we have been very good and have professional relationships with authorities. We have not taken this step lightly, but the conduct of the DPC has finally crossed all of our red lines. 
They basically deny us all our rights to a fair procedure unless we agree to shut up, Strem said. He went on to warn that Austrian interruption laws are far-reaching and to further emphasise, when an official requests a scientist's benefit to conduct a legal duty, the interruption provisions may be triggered. Legally, there's no difference between demanding an unauthorised agreement or a bottle of wine, all of which looks exceptionally awkward for the DPC. The DPC already agreed to swiftly finalise another fractious complaint made by SREMS, this one relating to Facebook's EU-US data transfers, and which dates all the way back to 2013. And again, if you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, you'll know that we've covered that several times, the way that it effectively made the EU-US privacy shield invalid, and is why now all these contracts now have to be rewritten with standard contractual clauses. Last month, NOYB published a draft decision by the DPC in relation to another slightly less vintage complaint against Facebook, which suggested that the tech giant's lead EU data regulator intended not to challenge Facebook's attempt to use an opaque legal switch to bypass EU rules by claiming that users are actually in a contract with it to receive targeted ads and therefore arguing that GDPR consent requirements do not apply. The DPC has furthermore suggested a risk that penalty of $36 million for Facebook failing transparency requirements over the, over the previously mentioned ad contract. That decision remains to be finalised because under GDPR's one-stop-shop mechanism for deciding trustable complaints, other EU data protection authorities have a right to object to a lead supervisor's preliminary decision and to seek to drive a different outcome. It should be remembered that despite some of these investigations going back almost three years, the DPC has yet to make a single final finding against Facebook itself. Its only finding so far has been, of course, its fine against WhatsApp, which is currently subject to a appeal by WhatsApp themselves. However, it should be noticed that WhatsApp have also, this week, tweaked their privacy policy in response to the DPC penalty, and we'll be discussing that later in this episode of the GDPR Week Show. Strems concluded... We very much hope that Facebook or the DPC will file legal proceedings against us to finally clarify that freedom of speech prevails over the scare tactics of a multinational and its taxpayer-funded minion. Unfortunately, we must expect that they know themselves that they have no legal basis to take any action, which is why they reverted to procedural blackmail in the first place. The DPC decided to respond by way of a questions and answers document. First question was, there seems to be a standoff between the original Austrian complainant and the DPC over confidentiality of documents in the one-stop shop arrangements for GDPR in a dispute like this, which jurisdiction has primacy, where the case was filed or where it's being processed. The DPC replied, under GDPR, because the relevant data controller, in this case Facebook Ireland, has its main establishment in Ireland, the Irish DPC is what's called the lead supervisory authority and so has the obligation to investigate and make a preliminary decision about the issues raised in this complaint. The Austrian Data Protection Supervisory Authority referred the complaint to the Irish DPC on this basis. Once we've reached a draft decision, which is how our proposed decision is referred to under Article 60 of GDPR, it is then sent to and considered by our colleagues in the Data Protection Authorities in the other EU member states as part of a co-decision-making procedure. Following this process, the Irish DPC reaches a final decision on the complaint reflecting either the consensus achieved amongst data protection authorities or where differences arise between them which cannot be reconciled, a decision of the European Data Protection Board, the EDPB, following a dispute resolution procedure. The Irish DPC is obliged to follow Irish fair procedures laws as part of our decision-making process. These fair procedures obligations have been confirmed on separate occasions by the Irish courts, including the Supreme Court. 
One of the considerations here is that, as a matter of fairness to all parties, the integrity of the inquiry process should be respected and the confidentiality of information exchanged between the parties upheld. What we mean by this is that it would be unfair to any party under investigation by a regulator, not just the DBC, if the materials that they provide to that regulator and the regulator's queries to and correspondence with them should be made public before any decision is reached in relation to the matters that are under investigation. This would effectively mean investigation against anybody would be turned into an open public process before any decision is reached about them, and that's not fair, nor has it ever been a feature of regulation in Ireland up to now. Reflecting these sorts of considerations, Section 26 provides that DPC may designate information as being confidential, so it must be kept confidential while the inquiry is ongoing. The reasons why information is designated confidential include the following. To preserve, maintain free and frank exchanges between the DPC and each of the complainant and the controller. Facilitating the kind of dialogue and associated information flows necessary to ensure that all the issues under examination can be fully and effectively explored and positions advanced by relevant parties fully and properly tested. Also, to ensure that the issues under examination can be addressed within the confines of the decision-making process itself, and to reduce the scope for parallel exchanges taking place outside that process, and to avoid the publication or other disclosure to third parties of exchanges identifying interim views and or positions that remain under consideration by the DPC, and which, if disclosed prior to the inclusion of the decision-making process, may reasonably be considered likely to compromise the decision-making process and or devise the procedure unfairness and or cause harm to the interests of the complainant and or the data controller, as the case may be. It is of note here that both the Irish and Austrian data protection authorities agree that neither the complainant nor the controller has the right to participate in the consultation process that forms a key part of the trade decision-making procedure described before. From there... The Austrian DPA held that Mr. Schrems was not entitled to cite the documents exchanged between DPC and its fellow data protection authorities. For its part, the DPC believes that the parties should be given sight of such materials, provided only that they agreed to treat them as confidential within the decision-making process. The next question they raised was, according to Schrems, the Austrian DPA says there's no confidentiality towards covering such procedural documents. You say in your letters to NOIB that there is a confidentiality clause. As noted, the Austrian authority has made it clear on two separate occasions now that it did not consider that Mr. Swems was entitled to cite the documents exchanged between the DPC and its fellow data protection authorities in the course of the trade decision-making procedure. It has also expressed the view to the DPC that Mr. Swems would not have been entitled to the draft decision and accordingly its publication on foot of the equivalent Austrian process could not arise. It was then asked, does the DPC draw on legislation outside the 2018 Data Protection Act regarding confidentiality procedures, and if so, where? To which the response from the RSDPC was that the RSDPC draws on its obligations under GDPR, the Irish Data Protection Act 2018, and its constitutional obligation to apply fair procedures. And then NOYB says the paragraphs of the 2018 Act, the, the DPC cites, apply only to relevant person, which includes DPC employees and contractors. Is this correct, or is there another section of the Act that applies to parties in a complaint too? To which the DPC has replied, One of the legal obligations on the Irish DPC is under Section 26 of the Data Protection Act 2018. This requires that relevant persons, which include officers of the DPC, must not disclose confidential information unless it is required, for example, by fair procedures obligations, as explained before, or is permitted by law. Even then, however, the DPC must balance its obligations to protect confidential information against the complainants and data controllers' rights to fair procedures. In practical terms, the DPC is bound to take all reasonable steps to ensure that the confidentiality of such material is upheld in its own hands, but also when it passes to the hands of a third party. 
To put it another way, the DPC can't comply with its obligation to protect confidential material in its own hands if it then passes the same material to a third party without any restriction, knowing or reasonably believing there's a strong likelihood the third party would put it in the public domain. So then the DPC was asked, what happens in this case if Mr. Sremsky declines to give an undertaking, actionable in the Irish court, there will be no more publication of documents. Can the objections phase and the final decision proceed without Mr. Sremsky or NOYB, the complainant, receiving documents? To which the DPC replied, As we previously mentioned, neither the complainant nor the controller are afforded an active role in the co-decision-making procedure described before. Save to the extent that, for reasons derived from Irish procedural law, the DPC takes steps to afford the complainant and controller a right to see the objections and to make written observations, if any, adjustments are proposed to the current iteration of the draft decision. As such, the objections phase at least will proceed as planned. What happens at any later stage will depend on a number of factors to include the outcome of the consultation process as between the DPC and the other data protection authorities, but also on whether Mr. Srems maintains his present position that he must be given access to all materials on the basis that it would be for Mr. Srems alone to decide what, if anything, he may publish or use, and retain the right to change his position at his sole election at any time of his choosing. Ultimately, NOYB will also have a right of appeal against the final decision delivered at the end of the code decision-making procedure. NOYB's response has been that this is Facebook's position, but in fact public debate and criticism, especially when it comes to the data protection right of millions of people in a democratic society, cannot be limited to after a decision is made. In fact, it's crucial that parties and the public can form an opinion during the decision-making process. As a default, political, regulatory or court procedures are therefore open to the public, unless there are serious grounds to limit information. The DPC take the view that by default the public and parties may not voice concerns or just get informed about the procedure before it's too late. What comes in addition to that is that the DPC is extremely complicated and slow in its decision process. The pending case lasts for about three and a half years by now. Usually such decisions are shorter and the room for public debate is therefore more limited. In the EU-US Data Shield case, the investigation had been ongoing for more than eight years. The public would never have been informed about the background of two CJEU decisions if such fairness rules were continuously applied since 2013. On the issue of the cooperation negotiations between the Irish DPC and the Austrian DPC, NOYB says the Austrian DPA is in fact only takes the view that the cooperation process under Article 60, paragraph 3 to 5 of GDPR is not open to both parties. The DPC instead explicitly says that both parties have a right to be heard in its letters. We urge that both DPAs come to a consensus, but it seems they were unable to reach a consensus. There is now a situation where the Irish DPC takes the view that there is a role for the parties, but the documents are secret, and the Austrian DPA takes the view there is no role for the parties, but if there would be a role, the Austrian DPA would make the documents usable for anyone. This battle between Srems and the Irish DPC, we suspect, is going to rumble on and on. So whenever we get any further news, we will bring you updates in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, you'll know that in episode 170, we announced that WhatsApp had appealed against their fine imposed by the Irish Data Protection Commissioner. But this week, WhatsApp has updated its privacy policy for all European users as a result of the Irish DPC investigation. On the 22nd of November, WhatsApp confirmed the policy will not change their service or how it handles user data, but will provide more details about how users' personal information is passed to its parent company, Meta, which also owns Instagram and Facebook. 
This clarification will only appear in the European version of the privacy policies and does not require users to agree or take action. The privacy policy update comes after a lengthy and comprehensive investigation by the Irish DPC and a binding decision from the European Data Protection Board that the DPC reassessed the case and increased WhatsApp's proposed fine for not being transparent about sharing data with their parent company. On its help centre, WhatsApp specifies that it shares certain categories of information with method companies like account registration information, transaction data, service-related information, mobile device information, business interactions on its services, and other points of information based on consent. However, it does emphasise that this content is not applicable to users in the European region and that it will always protect personal conversations with end-to-end encryption, so neither WhatsApp nor Meta can see these private messages. This limitation also applies to logs of messaging and calling, shared locations and contacts per its update in January of this year. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com To Canada now and suspects from the Ottawa and Montreal areas one of whom worked at a government vaccination call centre, were arrested on Tuesday in connection with an OPP investigation into a security breach of Ontario's COVID-19 immunisation system. The province's cybercrime team said it started an investigation into a possible data breach on November the 17th when the Ontario government flagged reports from the public about spam text messages received after residents booked COVID-19 vaccine appointments or downloaded their vaccination certificates. On Monday, OPP executed search warrants in Ottawa, as well as in Quebec, with help from the security agency in Quebec. Police said they seized several computers and electronic devices. Ayub Sayed, a 21-year-old from Gloucester, Ontario, is facing charges of unauthorised use of a computer. OPP said in a statement that the suspect is a government employee who worked in the province's vaccine contact centre. Rahim Abdu, 22, of Vadru Dorion in Quebec, faces the same charges. Both accused have been released with future court dates. A spokesperson for Ontario Solicitor General, Sylvia Jones, said on Tuesday that Syed was working in the tool centres for a third-party vendor but is no longer employed by the government. Spokesperson Stephen Warner also confirmed that no personal health information was accessed as part of the breach. Jones told reporters on Monday that the public can feel secure in using the online vaccination portal. When we hear of potential breaches, we investigate thoroughly, she said at a press conference on Monday. We have confidence in the booking system and we have no concerns. An OPP spokesperson said the cybersecurity unit is still investigating to determine how many people were contacted through the breach. He said the scam appears to have been an attempt to solicit more private or financial information from the targets. At this point, we continue to investigate the nature of the messages, the spokesperson said. Typically, text or SMSing refers to the fraudulent practice of sending text messages purporting to be from a reputable source in order to induce individuals to reveal personal information, such as passwords or credit information, of course it's also known as phishing. The OPP advised members of the public to be suspicious of any messages asking them for such information and report any possible scams to the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. To Pakistan now. And a coordination committee headed by the National Assembly Deputy Speaker Twasim Kansuri will look into the issues raised by parliamentarians about the National Database Registration Authority's NADRA alleged data breach. The body has been formed by Prime Minister Imran Khan on issues invariably raised by lawmakers. A formal invitation has been sent to all concerned by the Prime Minister's office. The terms of reference of the committee include the issuance of block CNICs and any other collective issues in that regard. 
Apart from Suri, the committee includes MNAs Sada Mohammed Isra Tareen, Karam Sazad, Niaz Ahmed Jaka, Mohammed Alamjad Khan, Gold Dad Khan, and Mabub Shah. A day earlier, a Federal Investigation Agency official had told the National Assembly panel that Nadra's biometric data had been hacked and fake SIMs were being exported. However, FIA Cybercrime Wing Additional Director Tarek Pervez, who told this to the National Assembly Standing Committee on Information Technology, had later tried to clarify the claim. His statement had created warning signs amongst the MNAs and queries were presented before the official related to Nadra's data theft. Soon, the additional director had altered his statement saying that Nadra's data had not been hacked, but its biometric system was compromised that was used during the SIM verification process. Later, Nadra had refuted the claim to the FIA official. In a statement, an Nadra spokesperson had said public biometric data was completely safe and not hacked. The FIA official's statement regarding hacking of biometric data is based on a misunderstanding, the spokesperson had added. Nadra will seek a clarification from the FIA over the unnecessary statement and misrepresentation of the issue. The NA panel, while discussing the availability of illegal SIMs in the country, had unanimously stressed the need for overcoming this challenge. It had emphasised on increasing the capacity building of relevant institutions to ensure cyber security in Pakistan. Responding to the concerns of the committee members, Pakistan Telecommunication Authority Chairman Major General Retired Amir Azim Badwa had said that no mobile phone company had been given permission to sell SIMs on a door-to-door basis. There has been a 600% decrease in the sale of illegal SIMs during the past year, he said. The PIA chairman had clarified that the culprits obtained thumbprints of unaware people, mostly elderly or uneducated women, for various purposes including receiving digital payments and these biometric verifications were used to obtain SIMs. He added that some other illegal methods had been used to copy thumbprints, but the system was being phased out. The live fingerprint detection system is being introduced to eliminate the use of silicon thumbs, he said. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time. To the Philippines now, and news that a data breach may have compromised the contact information of thousands of customers of SNR membership shopping on November 14th. But the retailer only informed the public for an advisory on Wednesday this week, more than a week after the original incident. The National Privacy Commission, the NPC, told reporters on Wednesday that it was notified by SNR about the breach on November 15th and said that about 22,000 customers had been affected. The NPC refused to provide any other information to reporters. The voiding information from both NPC and SNR since the breach was filled by viral Facebook posts made by social media influencer and convicted scammer Christian Zangaza, who was slapped by a Malabon court with a five-year jail sentence in 2018 after being found guilty of violating the bouncing check law. The NPC declined to comment on Gaza's claims, which included a multi-million dollar blackmail reportedly made by a ransomware hacker against SNR. Under NPC rules, SNR had to inform the infected shoppers about the breach within 72 hours of discovering the incident, even with just a reason to believe that it might have been a breach, the only the data would still have to be informed. The SNR public advisory was dated November 21st and was posted on SNR's official Facebook page on November 24th. We would like to inform you that SNR recently became a target of a cyber attack. Our team acted immediately and decisively to implement our cybersecurity protocols that enabled us to resume our system's operations, it said. Limited membership data which are confined to contact information may have been compromised, however all our members' credit card and other financial information are safe and secured as these data are protected by encryption measures as required by regulation. 
the 22 SNR membership warehouse clubs and the 45 SNR New York style pizza stores have been part of the Pure Dog Group since 2012. If we receive any update on this, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. To Singapore now, and shipping giant Swire Pacific Offshore, SPO, has announced a data breach after it fell victim to a cyber attack. The shipping line, which is headquartered in Singapore, said in a press release that it had suffered unauthorised access to all of its IT systems. It said, The unauthorised access has resulted in the loss of some confidential proprietary commercial information and has resulted in the loss of some personal data. While the company didn't share any details about CyberTat, it did note that the incident was reported to the relevant authorities, including Singapore's Personal Data Protection Committee. Swire Pacific Offshore also said that it had taken measures to reinforce existing security protocols and mitigate further attacks. It also reported that none of its global operations were affected. Swire Pacific Offshore said that it takes a serious view of any cyber attack or illegal posting of data or any unlawful action that potentially compromises the privacy or confidentiality of data and will not be threatened by such actions. Swire Pacific Offshore is also working closely with data security experts to investigate the incident and determine what further actions it may need to take and will take all necessary steps to protect its customers and staff now and in the future. Swire Pacific Offshore is part of the Swire Group, a global conglomerate whose portfolio includes Cathay Pacific Airways. If we get any update on this from Swire, we will, of course, bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. We sometimes get asked what you should really do to try and make sure that you are as compliant with GDPR as you can be. And so we thought we'd just put a few headlines together and maybe in the next few weeks we will expand on them. But our headlines really were, obviously, first of all, you need to make sure you've registered with the ICO and paid the appropriate fee. Now, that might seem obvious, but only something like 22% companies have registered. So there are plenty of you out there who haven't. And if that applies to you, do go to the ICO website and make sure that you register. It has a self-assessment form to fill in, which will tell you how much you need to pay. Typically, it would be either £40 or £60 or £35 or £55 if you choose to pay by direct debit. We would recommend you select the direct debit option as it saves you having to remember to register again next year. Having done that, you need to think about whether you need to appoint a data protection officer and really that depends either on your size of company or the amount of data that you're processing. So if you've got a company over 250 people, then you really should have a data protection officer. And if you're processing lots of data, you should really have a data protection officer. If you're not in either of those categories, you might still decide to have a data protection officer anyway because your DPO will take care of all these matters about GDPR. And you can either appoint a data protection officer internally from your existing staff, or you can choose someone like ourselves to be your external data protection officer. The only note caution to give when you appoint your internal data protection officer is they can't be anyone who has a shareholding in the company. The next step you need to do is classify all your data and procedures and know what data you're holding, why you're holding it, how long you keep it for, and what you do with it. And as part of that, probably complete a data privacy or data protection impact assessment, a DPIA. And lots of companies forget to do this stage. They don't conduct a privacy assessment, and that means technically they're not GDPR compliant. So if you've not done one, again, either look at the ICO website for ideas on how to do one, or just reach out to us using contact details coming up at the end of this article. 
Once you've got all your policies, of course, it's then a question of training your employees to make sure that every employee at least knows the basics of GDPR, at least knows what GDPR is. And again, if you need any training, again, reach out to us using the details at the end of this article. And there are a couple of things that lots of companies don't do. The first is that you can have the most brilliant data breach policy known to man, but unless you test it, how do you know that it actually works? And so one of the things you should be looking to do is to put into your calendar that once a year, at least, you're going to test your data breach procedures and see if they work. And the other thing we would always recommend is that you have an annual audit of your GDPR compliance. And that means getting someone like yourselves to come in, look at what you're doing and decide to say you're doing it all right, great, or you've got some areas where you need to improve. And again, then we can work with you to improve those areas. So if you need help with any of those items that we've just discussed, then please do reach out to us using the contact details that are coming up right now. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. We return to Ireland now, and the Data Protection Commission, the DPC, has said that more than 70 public bodies have brought themselves into compliance with a key aspect of GDPR after its intervention. The Data Watchdog said now completed the most recent stage in its Data Protection Officer DPO enforcement programme, which is aimed at improving compliance with Article 37 of GDPR. Article 37, Paragraph 7 of the GDPR identifies public bodies as among the categories of data control required to appoint a DPO and to notify the DPO's details to the relevant authority. In the initial phase of the project, the DPC identified 77 potentially non-compliant public bodies from a total of almost 250. Following the intervention of the DPC, over 70 organisations brought themselves into compliance, raising the sector's compliance rate from 69% to almost 100%, the watchdog said. This year, the DPC also expanded the project to include the private sector, although there is no automatic requirement for non-public sector organisations to appoint a DPO. The Commission did, however, identify several sectors that were likely to meet the threshold to appoint the DPO due to the scale and nature of their data processing activities. These sectors included private hospitals, out-of-hours GP services, banks and credit unions. The DPC found that just over 40% of the 24 organisations identified in the health sector had appointed a DPO, but all were now in compliance with the rules after its intervention. The data body review identified 34 banking entities and brought the compliance rate up from 74% to 80%. Three organisations have given the DPC reasons for not appointing a DPO, while the remainder are continuing in discussions. Of the 242 credit unions identified by the Data Protection Commission, just under 30% win compliance initially. The watchdog now says 64% are complying with the rules, with 10% impartial compliance. The Commission is reviewing the reasons given by the 13% credit unions that have chosen not to designate a DPO. In cases where the DPC identifies persistent non-compliance, further enforcement measures will be taken as proportionate and necessary to ensure compliance with the requirements of GDPR. We are extremely pleased to announce the launch of our first book called GDPR Made Simple. It's available right now on Amazon, so if you just go to Amazon and search for GDPR Made Simple, you will find our book. Alternatively, go to gdprmadesimple.club and you can click through from our new website there directly to the page to buy the book on Amazon. For a limited period until the end of November, it's only £7.99, which is a saving of £7 on the normal price. As its name suggests, we've made it a very simple guide to GDPR, but nonetheless a guide which covers everything that you need to do to ensure that your organisation is UK GDPR compliant. And so we'd be extremely grateful if you'd purchase a copy of our new book, Profits from the book help to 
go towards the cost of running the GPL Weekly Show. And of course, if you've got any feedback on the book, then please either leave the feedback on Amazon or alternatively email us as usual at feedback at gplweeklyshow.com. We really hope you like the book. We've put many hours into its production and we hope, like the podcast, you find it extremely useful. We thought it was worth spending a few minutes talking about CCTV because it's one of those areas that under GDPR becomes a bit grey sometimes as to what is covered and what isn't covered, what can you do, what can't you do, and so on. And it's also fair to say that we're starting to see an increase in the amount of CCTV systems which are incorporating at least some degree of artificial intelligence. This is all great, it has great benefits in terms of security and so on, but does mean that video surveillance controllers need to be mindful of how they handle this sensitive consumer data in line with GDPR and the Protection Act 2018. So, just like any other form of data, CCTV data has to be capable of identifying specific individuals, and if it does, then it's required to be handled in a secure, transparent, ethical and lawful manner. A lack of compliance can leave you open to severe punishments from the data protection authorities in that UK case, the ICO. If we cover over to Germany then, for example, earlier this year, computer electronics retailer Notebook Bilger was handed a 10.4 million euro GDPR fine over non-compliant video monitoring of its employees. The reason for the enforcement was because under GDPR guidelines, video monitoring was done without a proper legal basis and went on significantly longer than necessary. So what that means is if you suspect one of your employees is pilfering, for example, you are quite legitimate to set up CCTV within the workplace to try and spot them in the act. However, once you've identified the culprit and or you've run it for a reasonable period of time, let's say three months, and you haven't identified anybody, then you don't have a right to keep it there under GDPR anymore. You should really remove it. But with this increased intelligence within CCTV systems, all next-generation video surveillance systems are required to have the necessary safeguards in place to protect consumer privacy and security in accordance with GDPR. Organisations that adopt and implement smart AI-powered CCTV surveillance are responsible for ensuring the explicit and transparent use of such powerful and invasive tools in the interest of GDPR compliance. In addition, Highly intelligent video surveillance solutions that process sensitive data sets are deemed high risk and organisations handling this data are required to carry out data protection audits and impact assessments before setting up such high-powered AI video monitoring systems. Such requirement is certainly obligatory under GDPR guidelines, which also obliges users to carry out this assessment frequently throughout periods of use. And I think that's important. It's not enough with sensitive CCTV to carry out a DPIA just when you introduce it, you need to build that in. So maybe every six months you are revisiting that DPIA to see whether what you have in place now is still adequate. So fundamentally, AI-based video surveillance solutions need to contain privacy by design safeguards that provide that much needed protection for the data subjects as well as having regular external GDPR compliance audits to prove their solutions withhold the standard of operation set out by the European Data Protection Regulatory Body, GDPB. This is due to the nature in which these video solutions that utilise AI collect and store sensitive biometric information from subjects that can be used to identify them and infringe on their privacy and security. To remain GDPR compliant, organisations 
need to adopt video surveillance solutions that are able to strictly collect and process anonymized visual data along with simple forms of metadata. As a result, this stops any sensitive consumer information that comes from the visual data that is collected from being identified. Organisations need to balance the need for consumer data for commercial gain with the careful and legal processing of personal data. This means ensuring that individuals cannot be tracked from camera to camera, yet can be viewed and analysed in a single camera field of view, as long as the person cannot be identified. Further, companies can also benefit from safety access and key data that they need to gain invaluable insights about accessibility of spaces, safety issues and consumer behaviour with regards to demographics and buyer habits. Companies place high value on being able to track a customer's journey quite understandably and then using this intelligence to provide new or improved customer experience. The most effective way to achieve this is by tracking and analysing personally identifiable consumer data, yet this would already infringe on GDPR. What is often overlooked is that GDPR compliance doesn't mean you have to be blind on camera-based video analytics. It's already a powerful tool within the boundaries of GDPR and without infringing on people's privacy or security. For organisations looking to leverage the power of next-generation AI video monitoring solutions to gain consumer insights, they will have to do so in a GDPR-compliant manner. Ever since it came in a few years ago, GDPR changed the way businesses collect and repurpose personal data as they're now expected to comply with its strict guidelines designed to provide consumers with high levels of privacy and data protection. So in a nutshell, this means that you must operate your CCTV with full transparency, minimising the data collection, ensuring the safe and secure storage of any data, while also conducting regular adequate GDPR impact assessments and audits. Three new schemes have been approved by the UK ICO in order to provide guidance for organisations on compliance with the data protection law. They cover the handling of personal data correctly when the equipment is destroyed, age assurance, so tied in with the children's code, which we've mentioned several times recently here on the GDPR Weekly Show, and children's privacy online, so again, tied in with the children's code. Organisations will be able to apply for certification under any of the three schemes, Upon being certified, organisations will have evidence of their compliance, enabling them to show that it satisfies certain standards on data protection. It will also protect consumers and give them greater trust in the organisations involved. And we're very pleased to say that we will be offering these certification services in the new year via Insurity, the company behind the GDPR Week Show. The key provision that relates to the certification schemes is Article 42 of UK GDPR. This effectively states that the ICO will be encouraged to establish these sorts of certification schemes. It also states that the ICO and other relevant certification bodies will be responsible for the assessment of organisations' compliance with the standards and then the approval or withdrawal of certifications. The three new developed schemes are the first example of the ICO exercising this power under GDPR. So to give a little more detail on the first scheme, which is the ADISA ICT Asset Recovery Certification Scheme, This certification relates to recovery services which include processing activities and data sanitisation. It covers applicants or either data processors or sub-processors and its aim is to assist controllers in managing compliance with asset recovery. Applicants will be assessed against four criteria. First, their business credentials. This includes credit scores, insurance details and other business requirements. Secondly, their UK GDPR and UK Data Protection Act 2018 compliance. This is an overview of general compliance which includes incident and data breach management and information governance. Their risk management. This includes assessment of an organisation's logistics and data sanitisation. And their non-data service. This includes waste management and recycling. 
For applicants to be certified, they will need to pass a full ADISA audit against those criteria. If we turn now to the Age Check Certification Scheme, the ACCS, this scheme is relevant to all age check providers covering a range of age determination, age categorization, and age estimation. This certification will be used to ensure that age check systems are effective. This is vital for organisations that provide anything, goods, services, or indeed content, that is age-related. Whilst there is an extensive list of technical requirements on the process and personal data for organisations that wish to be certified, the key point is that the standards require applicants to have a publicly stated commitment to reduce the access that children have to age-restricted goods. And in the third scheme is the Age Appropriate Design Certification Scheme, the AADCS. This scheme is relevant to all organisations that process data for services likely to be accessed by children, apps, websites, social media platforms, online marketing places, all of those are likely to fall in the scope. The key requirement is that any organisation certified must identify the needs of children and support these needs when processing personal data. Some of the requirements are, for example, that you keep children safe from the risk of exploitation, you protect children's health and well-being, and you protect and support children's physical, physiological and emotional development. The full list of actions is contained within the ICO guidance. Organisations will also need to undertake data protection impact assessments with a particular focus on the rights of and the risks to children. As we mentioned, we will be offering services to help our clients gain these certifications and we will be beginning those services in January. So listen out for episodes of GDPR Weekly Show in January when we'll be bringing more detail on each of these certification schemes and how we can help you achieve certification. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. The EDPB has issued some additional guidelines on what is and what isn't considered a transfer of data as far as transfers between the UK and the EU are concerned. And the guidelines that they've issued are that where personal data is disclosed directly by a data subject to the controller, i.e. a consumer in France is completing a form on your website here in the UK, then that is not considered a data transfer as far as the EU and UK are concerned. So you don't need an agent to be able to do that transfer or a permanent place of business in France to be able to do that transfer. You can just do that. They've also suggested that transfers between the same party, e.g. the same company, in different countries is not a transfer. And that's an important step forward. So that means that if you've got offices in, let's say, London and Berlin, then you can transfer data between London and Berlin within the same company without having to worry about data transfers and standard contractual clauses and all of that administration. You can just do the data transfer. Obviously, you need to make sure your other GDPR rules are in place, but it simplifies the situation. They're also suggesting that EU-based employees of EU companies accessing company personal data in a third country is not a transfer. What do they mean by this? They mean that If you're based in the EU and one of your staff comes to the UK and your staff log on to your work system whilst they're here, then you don't need to worry about any additional paperwork for them to be able to do that. The same is true, by the way, if either from the UK or the EU, one of your staff goes to the USA and whilst they're there, they need to access your systems back here in either the UK or the EU. Just that simple access to the system is not now going to be considered a data transfer. 
However, what are to be considered transfers are situations where a processor in the EU sends data back to a controller outside of the EU who's not subject to GDPR. So, i.e., because the processor is within the EU and so is liable to GDPR, but the controller isn't, let's suppose again they're in the USA, then you do need standard contractual clauses and so on in place to be able to process that data legally. And they've also implied the same the other way around. So if you're a data processor in the EU or the UK and you send data to a sub-processor outside the EU who's not subject to GDPR, again, all the standard contractual clauses still need to apply. I actually welcome these suggestions. I think they cover a great deal of day-to-day situations which arise in companies and organisations, especially now that the world is starting to open up again to overseas travel. So it does mean that, you know, if you're the manager of a company and you go to the US for a conference and whilst you're out there, you need to access the payroll system here in the UK, you don't need any additional paperwork in place to make sure that actually you're covered when you're doing that. And I think that's just common sense. So at the moment, these are only suggestions from the European Data Protection Board. They are currently out for consultation until the 31st of January 2022. But we would hope that they would become enforceable guidance rather than just guidance notes very early after the 31st of January 2022. We will, of course, keep a careful eye on this for you and bring you any updates right here on the GDPR Witcher Show. We are extremely pleased to announce the launch of our first book called GDPR Made Simple. It's available right now on Amazon. So if you just go to Amazon and search for GDPR Made Simple, you will find our book. Alternatively, go to gdprmadesimple.club and you can click through from our new website there directly to the page to buy the book on Amazon. For a limited period until the end of November, it's only £7.99 which is a saving of £7 on the normal price. As its name suggests, we've made it a very simple guide to GDPR, but nonetheless a guide which covers everything that you need to do to ensure that your organisation is UK GDPR compliant. And so we'd be extremely grateful if you'd purchase a copy of our new book. Profits from the book help to go towards the cost of running the GDPR Weekly Show. And of course, if you've got any feedback on the book, then please either leave the feedback on Amazon alternatively, email us, as usual, at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We really hope you like the book. We've put many hours into its production. And we hope, like the podcast, you find it extremely useful. And finally this week, we have news that the UK government is introducing a cyber bill designed to clamp down on unsecured devices. The law could prevent the sale of smartphones, TVs, speakers, toys and other digital devices that fail to meet minimum security requirements. Companies could be fined up to £10 million or 4% of their global turnover if they sell digital products that fail to protect customers from being hacked. Manufacturers, importers and distributors of digital technology will be required to make sure their new devices meet new security standards under a new law proposed by the UK government with heavy fines for those who fail to comply. The Product Security and Telecommunications Infrastructure Bill, introduced to Parliament on Wednesday, will allow the government to ban universal default passwords, force firms to be transparent to customers about what they're doing to fix security flaws in connectable products, and create a better public reporting system for vulnerabilities found in those products. At present, digital device manufacturers must comply with rules to stop them from causing people physical harm, 
from issues such as overheating, sharp components or electric shock, but there's no regulation to protect consumers from harm caused by cyber breaches, which of course can include fraud and theft of personal data. The bill will give government new powers to bring in tougher security standards for device makers. The tougher standards include a ban on easy-to-guess default passwords that come preloaded on devices such as password or admin, which are a target for hackers. All passwords that come with new devices will need to be unique and immune to resets from universal factory settings. The new law will also require connectable product manufacturers to tell consumers at the point of sale and keep them updated about the minimum amount of time a product will receive vital security updates and patches. If a product does not come with security updates, that must be disclosed to the customer at the time of purchase. This will increase people's awareness about when the products they buy could become vulnerable so they can make better informed purchasing decisions, the government says. It's believed that nearly 80% of the firms targeted by the bill do not have any such system in place at the moment. There will also be new rules that require manufacturers to provide a public point of contact to make it simpler for security researchers and others to report when they've discovered a security flaw in the product. This new cybersecurity regime will be overseen by a regulator, which will be designated once the bill comes into force, and will have the power to fine companies for compliance up to £10 million or 4% of the global turnover, as well as up to £20,000 a day in the case of ongoing contraventions. The regulator will also be able to issue notices to companies requiring that they comply with the security requirements, recall their products, or stop selling or supplying them altogether. As new threats emerge or standards develop, ministers will have the power to mandate further security requirements for companies to follow via secondary legislation. National Cyber Security Centre Technical Director Dr Ian Levy said the bill would ensure the security of connected consumer devices and hold device manufacturers to account for upholding basic cyber security. The requirements this bill introduces, which were developed jointly by DCMS and the NCSE with industry consultation, mark the start of a journey to ensure that connected devices on the market meet a security standard that's recognised as good practice, he added. There will obviously be more to come on this as the bill makes its way through Parliament, so we will of course bring you regular updates on this right here on the GDPR Weekly Show. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com The GDPR Weekly Show is an insurety production. Until next time, bye-bye.